Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. What's up, guys? Ryan Sprague here, and I'm just dropping in to remind you about our Patreon campaign. Somewhere in the Skies is always free to consume, but it's not free to create. So if you want to help the show on a monthly basis, we have tons of rewards for you in return, including shoutouts on the show and website, bonus content and episodes, and free merch. Want to be my guest or pick a topic for the show? You can do that too. So if you'd like to learn more and to help support the show, visit patreon.com slash somewhere skies. Thank you, and keep looking up. Today on the show, James Fox, creator and director of the new documentary, The Phenomenon. Do you think we're ever going to find out what's going on? I know unequivocally that there's something very big that's imminent, and I know that for a fact. I think it's going to come in the form of, of either a statement or something of that nature. And I, um, I'm very confident that's about as all as I'm going to reveal. It's imminent. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Spread. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Somewhere in the Skies. I am your host, Ryan Sprague, and today we are going to be talking about the number one documentary in the world right now, and that is The Phenomenon, and we're going to be talking to the creator and director of The Phenomenon. You know him in the UFO world. You know him all around television and everything in between, and that is James Fox. James, thank you so much for joining me today, brother. Well, it's about time we got to do this, huh? I know. I feel like I'm the last person on the planet to interview you. But hey, you're seasoned now. We can we can really let you know let loose, and you can tell me some stuff that you haven't told anyone else. How's that hope, sound? Hope, hopefully, I don't sound like I'm on autopilot. No, I'll give you. I'm definitely here to give you good, new, you know, fresh information on because there's so much to talk about. I could go on for weeks. I know, man. I know, and that's that's one of my questions because I know after having spoken to you at length while the process of this filming was going on. So much wasn't in the film um, for the final cut. So we'll get to that. But um, before we even talk about the phenomenon, I got to ask you, how does it feel to finally have this done? We have been waiting just as long as you have, but probably even longer for a film like this to come around in this medium. So yeah. How does it feel, man, to finally have it out there? You know, I, that's a good question, and I, I thought that I would feel happier about it. And I don't get me wrong; I'm very happy with with the with the film and the end result of the film. But the the uh, the level of of trauma uh, that uh, that I experienced in getting this film out. And remember, it was incredibly challenged. Just challenging producing a documentary, especially a documentary on UFOs, 
Then you're talking about a documentary that deals with, you know, alleged close encounters of the third kind. So I had like all the worries of associations with very high level government and military officials that I was terribly concerned were going to pull out the carpet out from under me once they realized they were connected to a film that deals with alleged telepathic communication with beings on the ground in Africa with the students. So I had all that in the back of my mind the whole time. Like I have to get approval. These guys have to sign. So that was a lot of course out of money all the time. And then Corona hit. As soon as the contracts had the ink dried on the contract for the film to be distributed, uh, in like 1,500 theaters across America, which has been my goal since I was 25 years old, uh, to, to, to the, that stamp of validation of having a, a, a documentary on the topic of UFOs in theaters. That was like, yes! And then COVID hit. So so I didn't get that that rollout, that red carpet rollout, and, and, and sit, quite honestly, in a theater with an audience of people, and you get that sense of, of completion, you know, and I never got that. And so people think it's funny when I ask them, you know, well, you know, I really love your movie. Well, Hey, I'd love to hear about it. Tell me what was your favorite part. Like I never got that. You know what I mean? Wow. I never sat in a room and got to see people's reactions of this, all this hard work. I felt, you know, I know a lot of people have been deprived of a lot of stuff during these incredibly challenging times. So I don't want to sound like I'm complaining, but, but, I, I never got that full satisfied moment of looking around a room of an audience of viewers and, and, and getting the satisfaction of getting their, their feedback, their response um, in real time. So uh, how do I feel? I, I'm really happy with the end result and um, I haven't quite soaked it up yet. Yeah. I, hey man. I mean, again, this is probably the most tumultuous time either of us will see in our lifetimes, you know, with everything going on in the world, in our country. And, uh, for the film to come out right now, I, I, I understand it's a little bittersweet. Um, again, it did hit number one, which is incredible. Um, but is there a possibility that we could see it in theaters once things kind of go back to normal as people are calling it? There is definitely, we're having discussions about a limited uh, theatrical rollout in 2021. Uh, there's a c- couple of people that we're in, dis- in talks with about it. Um, so, yeah, that's definitely on, on the drawing board. And, and one of the things that I would like to personally make happen is I want to do a round-the-world tour. I want to go and have a massive screening in Africa, um, you know, Europe, um, Australia, South America, you know, China, a lot of the places that we film and and certain venues within the United States as well. So I'm definitely planning on doing something like that. But on top of that, there's discussion of getting into some actual movie theaters. So the answer to your question is most probably yes. Awesome. Awesome. Well, let's dive into the film because we have a lot of listener questions as well. But I want to get to what I kind of uh, personally found really interesting in the film. And that was your discussions with people who worked for Project Blue Book. I mean, rarely do we get this much of a glimpse into the the work and lives of those who worked for the most visible uh, UFO program within the government, within the U.S. Air Force Project Blue Book. And the first person you interviewed was uh, William T. Coleman, the public information officer for Project Blue Book. And he had some really interesting things to say. What was it like interviewing him? And uh, yeah, what'd you take away from what he had to tell you, James? Well, I was shocked 
that he had never done a proper 60-minute style sit-down interview uh, with really good lighting and really good audio and to, to tell his story because uh, Colonel William Coleman had one of the most dramatic UFO. And listen, I've, I've heard a lot of UFO encounters, okay? Colonel Coleman, in my opinion, uh, had one of the most dramatic UFO encounters I've ever heard. And uh, I don't know if your audience wants me to go into a little bit of it or not, but um, basically. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so yeah, so, so the duration of this encounter was roughly nine minutes. It started off at, at an elevation of 9,000 feet. He was in a B-25. It was 1955 over Alabama. He had three other people in the in the plane with him. There were engineers from Lockheed Martin and Boeing. And uh, they started, like I said, they started the encounter at, at 9,000 feet. It ended up at maximum continuous power at treetop level. And I said to him, what do you mean by maximum continuous power? And he goes, if I went any faster, the engines would blow up. <laughs> and, and and he literally said he's chasing this disc, and they're all looking at this thing in broad daylight. They thought they are going to collide with it. He had to take evasive action, and he was so low that if he turned, he was going to dip the wing into the trees. And so he had to pull up, and he lost sight of it for a moment. But, they, but to hear this guy's encounter, a lot of times people think – UFO encounters is some blurry light off in the distance. But, you know, when you get an encounter with qualified observers, engineers, pilots, uh, and, you know, proximity of, like, thought we were going to hit, the, literally hit this thing. We're looking at it going, there's no exhaust vents. There's no wings. There are no tail. There's how is this thing flying, you know? And, and um, it was truly spectacular to hear it from the horse's mouth. And then on top of that, to hear him describe that once the Air Force put him as public spokesman for Project Blue Book, which was the investigatory arm of the Air Force for investigating UFOs, what's the first thing he did? He went to find his report because when they landed in 1955, Project Blue Book was in full effect and they all took detailed uh, you know, um, notes or uh, they filled out forms and you know detailed statements of the encounter and uh one of the things that the project blue book people at the time had said which he shared with us was that all they were shocked at how identical everyone's description of the encounter was and um of course once he got put in charge public spokesman for project blue book first thing he did was went to find his own sighting report and it wasn't it wasn't there Oh, man. Yeah. And now, was this, correct me if I'm wrong, this was one of the times in the film that you had a, a recreation, and you actually yes. filmed from within a bomber. Is this right? Yes. Yes. So it was really funny. Lee Spiegel helped find that that bomber. And I knew at the time when I interviewed him in Florida, I turned to my buddy, Dave West, who's the cameraman, and we looked at each other and we went, we're getting a B-25 and we're going to do a recreation because this is the most incredible encounter I've ever heard. And I want this to be the start of the whole movie. I want it to be sort of the cold open, the James Bond signing. Um, and uh, when we found a couple of B-25 bombers from World War II era, I think I either called the guy. I'm pretty sure I called him because Lee Spiegel had, or, had organized, you know, putting me in touch with these people as well as Dave West and, um, and I said, hey, guys, if you guys can't fly, I just want to get something out of the way right off the bat here. If you can't fly at treetop maximum speed, then we got to go somewhere else. And this guy goes, 
yeah, I think we could do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's when you got to hire the stunt people, right? <laughs> it was crazy. I was sitting in the, the, the nose cone. I had to crawl through the cylinder, this long, like, polished cylinder, like, squeak my way through here. And then I just ended up in this little glass bubble. Yeah. With a with a gunner with like where the gunner would sit, and just glass between me and certain death, and uh, <laughs> well, that was a really weird feeling. You know, it was really exciting and, and scary and all the rest of it. But what a cool like I you know I don't hear people mention that section of the film as often as I was expecting, but that's mm-hmm. a that was a really really amazing encounter, and I thought I felt that it was a pretty good within you know budgetary expectations uh recreation absolutely yeah it brought so much to the film and um i guess while we're on the subject of project blue book which is a big part of i guess um i as a playwright i would say the first act of the the play we'll get to the second act but maybe the first act of a film um let's talk about robert friend i mean probably the most likable person to ever have worked with the U S air force. I mean, the smile on this guy is so endearing. Um, and you got to interview him and you were probably one of the last people to ever do that. Cause he unfortunately passed away not too long after, uh, you had interviewed him. And, um, yeah. he is probably the, the one person who worked for blue book other than probably Rupel to, um, really, really tried to get to the truth instead of having the Air Force tell them what to tell the public with this Project Blue Book. So um, what was it like interviewing Robert? And um, yeah, any interesting stories to tell about that experience? Definitely. So I'll start off with Jacques Vallée's. Uh, and it was a, such a privilege and an honor to work with Jacques. And uh, Jacques helped us assemble the pieces of the, of the puzzle together historically in a way uh, that, uh, according to historians, has never been done before. Jacques did a lot of that, so he knew. And um, and Jacques, ironically, his favorite scene in the whole movie, and he loves a lot of it, he loves, he loves all of it, but his favorite scene in the whole movie is the smile from Robert Friend when I think he says, uh, you know, we didn't know what they were or something. I said, oh, so you guys closed it because you didn't know what they were? And he looks at me and he goes, or we closed Project Blue Book because we did know. And he gives this sort of smile, and it's like this little ding in his eye. <laughs> that oh, it was awesome. Really powerful scene. Really, really a poignant moment. It's so just that look at his eye said so much. And Jacques just, he was like, that's my favorite part of the movie. <laughs> I mean, he loves the children at the end, too. But, but Jacques, mm-hmm. that, that part in particular. And there are a handful of people that, that do comment on that. Not, again, not as many as I expected, but. But yeah, that's a beautiful telling moment in the film. Absolutely. And I think that's what really, really shown through in the film, James, is uh, this isn't surface level. Um, you know, I worked for Blue Book. Yeah, we investigated UFOs. He tried to get to the the heart of these people who were dramatically affected by the work they did. Like whether they believed anything was of extraterrestrial origin or not, or multidimensional, whatever they think the source of UFOs are or aren't, uh, it affects them. And I mean, that couldn't be more true than probably uh, my favorite part of the film. And that was the Socorro case. I know this mm-hmm. is one of those cases that you've chased for so long. A lot of us have. And man, did you get to the 
part of this one. You spoke to his wife, uh, Lani Zamora. So I guess for maybe some of our listeners who aren't aware of the case, could you maybe just give us the the brief rundown of the Socorro case? Um, and then the stuff you found from the National Archives, these letters. Yeah, please, please enlighten oh, us on this really, entire event. This is, this is funny because uh, this happened in 1964, April 24th, at roughly 5 p.m. in Socorro, New Mexico, which is about 44 miles away from Trinity site where they detonated the first atomic bomb in 1945. So you've got a police officer, Lonnie Zamora, who witnesses uh, a strange object in the sky, sort of a flash that catches his eye when he's in hot pursuit of a, of a speeding vehicle. Uh, it's a Friday. He, uh, discontinues his pursuit of the speeding vehicle and goes to, to investigate what this potential light explosion or whatever it was. He thought there was a, di- there was a dynamite shack up in the hill. He thought well, maybe the dynamite shack got off. He didn't know. And he came across an object in Arroyo that he initially was like, is that a car? Is that a, did it roll off the, down into the ravine? And like, are those two children? Like, what, what am I looking at? He slowly come to the realization that he's looking at something otherworldly. Um, it's an egg-shaped craft, and there were two beings, small, diminutive f- figures in white suits, standing and sort of walking around the bottom of this egg-shaped craft. Um, he got eye contact with one of them. He was still sitting in his car, and he was a couple hundred yards away. And he was leaning out the window with the car stopped, and he's looking, and, he, and, and one of them, look, I sat down with his wife, and she had an article that no one has ever seen that says he was actually calling out to see if they were okay, and that one of them turned and looked him in the eye. But that's that we don't know that for sure. But what we do know for sure is that one of the beings turned and looked him right in the eye. Lonnie then drove his car a little further around this little bend to get a closer look. And he got within 50 feet of the landed UFO. And as his car pulled up, he heard a big thump sound. He said it reminded him of a, of a tank hatch closing. He was, in the, he was in the military. And he didn't see the beans anymore. And then he took two or three strides out of the car towards this object, putting him roughly 35 feet away, 35, 40 feet away. And uh, it suddenly made a, a loud noise and a blue flame. And this is very important. This blue flame came out the bottom of this egg and it went in the ground like a knife through warm butter. It didn't stir up the dust and rocks like a, like a propulsion, you know, conventional propulsion rocket would do. It went into the ground like without disturbing the ground, a blue flame. And the object lifted up, making a loud noise until it got to about 20 feet off the ground, at which point it went completely silent and the blue flame was gone. And then it just sat there motionless, you know. He said you could hear a pin drop. Um, it had a symbol on the side of it, which I, I could, I'll get into detail on that in a second. And then it flew off to, I think it was the southwest over a place called um, Magdalena. In any case, first police officer would get on the scene, the, 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 the prints in the ground from the landing gear. There were prints from the footprints of the two beings, exactly where Lonnie had said he'd seen them, uh, corresponding to that. There was burn marks and, and the plants are still smoldering from, from the propulsion, whatever this thing was. And uh, there were military officers on the scene within an hour, Richard T. Holder. They documented the entire landing site. They roped the area off. And it's 
the it's considered the most credible, well-documented close encounter of the third kind in in U.S. history. And and the uh, police officer Lorna Zamora, um, uh, everybody believed him. I mean, he was one of the most he was rock solid witness. But but let me I, I investigated the case really really thoroughly, really thoroughly over about a five year period. I went and got to know his and. and Getting into Socorro and getting into that tight-knit community was not an easy thing to do. I befriended one person who then eventually introduced me to to uh, Lonnie's wife, Mary, you know, kind of got became friends with her. I eventually bought their truck, which I have in California now, um, became really good friends. And um, his uh, then she introduced me to, to his co-worker that he worked out at the dump site for years. I got him on camera. I went to, um, I in, interviewed his daughter, Diane, which unfortunately that part of the interview for, for whatever reason ended up on the editor room floor. Um, I met with his son, Michael. Um, they all confirmed for me that two things. One, his wife said he was never the same after that day. And his daughter said the one thing that he confirmed unequivocally is that the Air Force really really didn't want him to talk about it, especially the aspect of the encounter that involved the beans, because it's one thing to be, you know, unable to identify, uh, you know, an airborne object. It's another thing when you've got beans on the ground. So that aspect of, 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 of the encounter uh, was, was really downplayed within the air force project blue book files. But when I went to the national archives, with the guy who wrote the book on the case, Ray Stanford, uh, Socorro Saucer in a Pentagon Pantry. It's the definitive book on the case. Um, mm-hmm. I went and stayed with Ray for like five days on the East Coast. It was really funny, you know. And Ray had like the rocks from the landing gear, from the rocks breaking, and had the landing gear scraping up against the rocks. He talked about these pieces of metal shavings that came. I mean, this whole aspect of it didn't end up in the movie. But I said, Ray, you know, we're not very far from the National Archives. Uh, let's go see what we can find. And he had so much resistance. He was like, James, that's going to be an utter and complete waste of time. Anything that could have been found 50 years ago was already found. And uh, we got this kind of argument. I was like, well, that kind of, you know, uh, attitude. Yeah, nothing is going to be found. I said, well, I'm going. And he said, fine, you go. We got kind of an argument. And I stomped out of his house. I jumped in my rental car. I started to back out of the driveway and I see his face look out the curtains from the kitchen or from the living room. And he kind of peers out. And he looks at me. And he gives me this, like, just hold up. Just wait a minute. So he comes out and he goes, okay, I'll come with you, but I'm taking my own car. Because after 10 or 15 minutes, I'll be thoroughly, you know, just done with the whole uh, prospect of finding anything. I said, fine. So he jumped in his car. I jumped in my car and off we went. Well, without boring your audience to death with the details, suffice to say, we eventually get the manager and we like, look, we've been on this floor. We've been on that floor. We get the microfilms. This guy right here, Ray Stanford, was at this landing site, was at this location, investigated personally in this case. And we know there's a lot of documentation that's just simply not in the microfilm files and we're not finding it. And he goes, okay, I'll tell you what, you guys go get some lunch. Let me see what I can do about this. Come back in 20 minutes or half an hour what it was. So Ray and I kind of looked at each other. We're like, okay, this is kind of exciting. So off we go. We have, we have some lunch. We come back out. This man comes with a, you know, a, a, a cart on wheels, all these folders. 
all original Project Blue Book folders, okay? Not microfilms, not copies, all originals. When this cart rolled out, there was a golden glow around it. I mean, I'm not kidding you. It was like, like, and it comes out, and Ray and I looked at each other. We were like giddy as kids on Christmas morning. Like, we couldn't believe it. Ray looked at me, and I looked at him, and we both were like, oh, my God. I can't believe this is happening. So we, like, go back. We get this whole thing. And we're like, oh, oh, my God. We're like, take this out. And they're like, okay, well, you got to put some gloves on, and you got to sit down, and you got to take your one paper out and put, her, and put a, you know, a placement holder in. We're like, Jesus, it's going to take forever. Got to walk that paper over to a printing or make a copy. And we're like, there's got to be a faster way. Well, I, I had gone back, and I was thinking to myself, well, hell, we got the originals. I'm going to go back to 1952 and see what I got at Project Blue Book. So I went back to the desk, and I said, Hey, um, uh, we loved if you if you wouldn't mind terribly, we'd love the Project Blue Book files from 1952 because I was like, what the hell are we gonna uncover from the 1952 sighting statements from the pilots? Like, come on! So she goes, "We're actually, you know, we kind of made a mistake. We weren't supposed to give the originals, but um, but since you have them, you guys can have them until we close." I said, "Well, okay. Well, I take what we can get." I said, "Well, um, uh." is there a faster way to do this? She's like, well, you can go get your own flatbed scanner and you can bring it to, you know. So I said, Ray, wait here. I went off to an office depot. I got myself a big glass flatbed scanner. Boom. Set that thing up. We were like a well-lubed machine. They were going through there. All the I look over, and we've been there for like five hours, right? We're going we we're to go there till the, till the sun was down, till they were locking us out. I look over at Ray, and Ray is holding this, document he's sitting right next to me he's holding this document and he's got a tear in his eye and he goes I, I, I found it i found it i said what ray what he goes oh my god it's in dr heineck's own handwriting he goes the symbol the symbol that has been a point of contention for all these decades for 50 years he's been telling me people have been telling him he's full of doggy doo what had happened was the initial symbol that was Seen on the side of the craft that was rather large in red. And remember, Lonnie came within 35 to 40 feet from this object that was sitting on the ground. Okay. He saw this thing really well. Well, when the first military officer got on the scene, Richard T. Holder, he was like, look, we, we, we got to change, we got to obfuscate. We got to change this symbol and say it's something else so we can immediately identify any hoaxers that are saying, hey, we saw the same thing. They would know immediately it was a hoax. So they went from the symbol, the real symbol, was an inverted V. I don't know why they don't just say an A, but it was an inverted V, okay, like this, with a line here, a line here, and one line at the top. That was the original. So it's like this with lines, two lines here, and then one across the top, right? So, and Ray's been saying this for decades, for 50 years he's been saying this, and no one's really believed in him. All this controversy is swirling. Even Kevin Randall wrote his book and didn't put the real symbol in, and I had a, kind of an issue about that. But in any case, um, we found it. And not only did we find it, we found it in Dr. Hynek's own handwriting, and he didn't, like, describe the symbol. He actually drew it. So, um, yeah, I know. It was a huge find, like a huge big deal. And that document didn't even end up in the movie. Can you believe that? I know. It's it's unbelievable. I know. I know. Believe me, I know. But I'm telling (laughs) you, I'm telling you, we had a screening of the film multiple times, and the last screening I had of the movie, I had... I spent a month in China 
I went to South America investigating the Virginia landing crash case from 1996, which is largely considered the Roswell of Brazil. I, I, I couldn't get it all into one movie. I just simply couldn't do it. And so yeah. we had a last screening of about 200, maybe 170 to 200 people in, in a theater. When we had a rough cut with my voice, Peter Coyote hadn't laid his tracks yet. And I can tell I'm the director, man. I, I look around. I know when people are losing interest. And after the two-hour mark, people were kind of like looking at their watches and adjusting their seats. Some people were going to the bathroom. I was like, ah, yeah, I got to cut this. I got to cut this stuff down. And so I was. we were brutal about it. And there were times, excuse me, in the edit room. I'm not kidding you. One time in particular, I had a whole block of stuff in the timeline. If you know I had an editor. And software works. You got a timeline. You got your video clips, your audio clips, things of that. Your special effects, filters, whatnot, and uh, you have multiple backups of the timeline. But there was a one section of the timelines, like you know, big look. We must have represented like two years of work, maybe two and a half years of work. And I had to close my eyes and delete it. And it was literally like a gut punch. Like I, of course, nobody misses it because they don't know what was in there. But for me, right. knowing what we're into getting all that stuff, it was like literally when I hit the delete button, I went, oh, you know, like, oh, it was, it was a physical like, oh, <laughs> but yeah. we had to do what's called killing your darlings. And, you know, the, the film had to yes. have a slow, it had to continue, you know, we did what we had to do. And so a lot I get of it, man. I, uh, oh, I was going to say I'm a playwright. And that was one of the first things we learned in my playwriting courses, uh, instead of kill your darlings, my professor said, kill your babies, which was a oh. little controversial, but um, it's true. Yeah. Man. It's not I easy. Know. It's not easy to work so hard to, to, you know, spend all that time on something and know that you can't make a five hour film. Like that would be a series, um, which we'll get to. Um, I know there's yeah. maybe some, some inklings of something like that, but um, dude, I get it. Um, Varginia is one of the most amazing cases. I know how much you uh, hold that one close. So that had to be really hard. I understand. Oh, my God. I was knocking on doors in the town of Virginia, going to the town square, following leads. Like, I'm yeah. telling you, man, you have no idea how hard I worked in Virginia. And I remember this sound guy from Sao Paulo. Sao Paulo. You know, pronounce it right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. looking at me like I'm the crazy American investigator. He's like, what do you do? You can't just knock on people. You're out of your mind. Like, you can't just <laughs> ask random strangers in the street. I was like, I did, and I got results. And I'll never forget when we interviewed the sister of the military police officer, Marco Cherezi, who died after allegedly handling one of these beans. I'm interviewing the sister, and there was her, her, her husband, like, literally standing 50 feet away, I could tell he her, her husband wanted nothing to do with her going on camera. I mean, nothing to do with it. Like, you could tell this has been a major issue within the family, within the town, within the – and to do her brother justice, she agreed to go on camera. And I remember this uh, – I, I remember this uh, Brazilian, you know, Sam guy kind of looked over at me and he goes, you got to be the luckiest bastard I think I've ever met <laughs> because we, we were literally knocking on doors. Well, that entire film – that section of the of the movie, sorry, gone. So, ah, man, you know. it's hard. It's hard. I know. Um, well, I guess kind of wrapping up Socorro, there is one more aspect to that that I'd love to talk to you about, James. And this actually, um, this is, came from one of your your editors and your producers who who told me this little tidbit. If you're willing to 
talk to us about it. Um, these letters that were written to yeah. Lonnie yeah. Zamora at the time. First of all, yeah. I mean, like you mentioned earlier, this event was not a positive aftermath for this guy. It went in his career, um, his reputation. Wasn't it, wasn't it, was not a career enhancing move. Exactly. And I mean, there were two times in the film that I actually cried. And that was one of them. When I heard in his own voice say, this like ruined my life, uh, that hit me. And then there's another part, which we'll get to that made me blubber a little, but um, the, the letters, all these letters were written to him. And um, supposedly he didn't write anyone back, but there was one letter that he did write a response to, and you were able to locate that. Is that something you were, you're willing to tell us here on the air? So I, let's see, how can I phrase this without going beyond my comfort zone here? Um, I interviewed Lonnie's coworker at the dump. I think they worked together for 30 years. I'd have to look at that to know for sure. And it was very, very difficult to get this guy to go on camera. I mean, extremely difficult. I mean, it took like locals really working this guy and he finally agreed and we had no idea, honestly, what he was going to reveal on camera. Of course, that interview didn't end up in the movie either. <laughs> Unbelievable. And he has since died. So as Mary has died. Um, I'm not sure if the local sheriff that I interviewed has died yet or not, but I interviewed him in the ICU. That ended up on the room floor. But anyway, we basically learned that there was possibly some evidence that could still be in Lonnie's house. I, in lieu of calling, I went there physically and I talked to his wife, Mary, and uh, told, shared with her the news that I had. And then I offered to rent her house for a couple of weeks and basically turned it upside down, um, which I did. And um, I, I, if I told your audience the, the, the lengths of which I went to to, to find said evidence, uh, we'd be here all night. But suffice to say, I do not give up easily. Okay, I turned that place upside down. In the process, I found a black duffel bag in his police locker in a in a in a uh, sh- shack um, shed outside, away from the house. And inside was meticulous keepings of newspaper clip- clippings, articles, um, letters of correspondence, uh, most of which were never even opened. Some of them were opened, clearly not responded to. Um, and I asked Mary, I, I shared with Mary what we'd found. And look, one of the things that was uh, what, so many people responded from all around the world. Like I just simply couldn't believe how many letters Lonnie had in this. And he had meticulously kept them. Clearly he put them all in one spot. And then, as I said earlier, the air force did a really good job at, at getting him to downplay the aspect of the close encounter of the third kind, describing the beans. And that was something that Richard, even Richard T. Holder had said to him very early on, you know, they took him into the interrogation room. I don't think he got out of there until about one o'clock in the morning. The, the sighting happened at five. The military showed up at about six. Um, and his wife said he came home and he was white as a sheet, you know, and, and didn't want to talk about it. But but in any case, uh, before the military had gotten on the scene, 
there were local police officers and, and, and other people that got to hear the unfiltered account of the beans and all this other stuff. And so that got out and was published in some of the local newspapers. Lonnie had cut those out and had kept them really special in this little collection of things. And so you'll see when you watch the movie, there's those descriptions of, of the beans and, and the fact that one of them looked right at him and all that stuff that probably would have just been forgotten had it not been for obviously Ray Stanford and, and those little clippings, but, um, but also letters from, from around the world uh, of, of people that seen similar things. There were also many references to people submitting photographs in the letters. Okay. And I'm going, why would you, it would say stuff like enclosed, please find, you know, four photographs of an object very similar to what you described. I took them in LA. I took them in here. Like I got a number of those letters and I'm thinking to myself, why are the, 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 the thing is opened and there are no photographs in any of these envelopes. Well, I talked to his wife, Mary, and Mary said that he had an ongoing relationship with the air force. They would come back and check in on him, call him, you know, there was a correspondence that went on for quite some time. And uh, I'm convinced, based on what I saw, that, um, and I know you asked me about a specific other letter that he did respond to, but I will say that um, I'm convinced that people sent him photographs of similar objects because he was like the epicenter of UFO sightings in America at the time. In fact, probably the world, because it got so much attention and that he gave those, those photographs over to the Air Force. Because why else would someone say... Here, in, in please find enclosed these photographs of, you know, on a couple of occasions in the letters, and there's no photographs. Like, yeah. what, what else? give me another explanation. Yeah. Wow. Yep. I mean, again, like, that's the thing when it comes to these, these cases, you know, they happen, but then things continue after that. So the fact that they buddied up to him and probably confiscated those photos says a lot. And again, we won't go into all the specifics, but it was a very powerful part of the film. Oh, thank you. And I, one of my favorite parts too. I, I, there's one more thing I want to mention. Uh, and yeah, this audience out there, this is something that, that I exhausted every possible avenue. And, and I don't, again, I can remind your viewers if, if I told you that the level of detail that I went after some of this, this footage I'm about to mention to you, um, we'd be here all night and your eyes would glaze over. But suffice to say, I came across at the National Archives before I met with Mary Zamora. I came across letters from Quintanilla, or Quintanilla who was a, a Project Blue Book uh, manager or, or chief project officer at Project Blue Book at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio at the time. Okay, Well, it came to my attention that through Quintanilla, Quintanilla and Dr. Hynek, through letters of correspondence, which I still have today, that there was a film crew that came to... Socorro in, I believe it was May of 1965, but I'm honestly, I'm not exactly sure of that date, but it was months after the sighting. In fact, I think it was under a year. The film was referred to in Air Force memos, Air Force letters of correspondence between Heineck. And basically what, uh, what was said was Quintanilla said, you know, it's come to my attention that there's a film crew that's coming to uh, to, to, to Socorro and that Lonnie Zamora is going to participate in this film. And we really don't want that. Like, I'm really concerned it's going to open up a whole new, the floodgate of inquiries. And it, we don't want that. 
He goes, it would be too obvious for me to go through Socorro, but why don't you be passing through and just stop by and pay a visit and find out what the hell's going on? Is Lonnie really doing this? So I was like, wow, that's interesting. I haven't heard about that case. Well, then uh, I even have the, the return response letter from Dr. Heineck, who says to Quintanilla, hey, I'm, I'm here I am sitting down in uh, Socorro, New Mexico with all the key players and uh, the only thing missing is the UFO, kind of, you know, ha-ha, and, uh, and confirmed that Lonnie was indeed participating with the film. But that's all I knew. When I came across this duffel bag at Lonnie's house, newspaper clippings cut out, and I got the details of this film. And it was a film called UFO, it was called um, uh, Ph- Phenomena 7.7. Phenomena 7.7. And the interesting thing was we were going to call this film uh, initially 701, right? Right. right. One is the representative number of cases after 12,000, I think, 618 UFO cases investigated by the United States Air Force, 701 remained unexplained. That was like it's symbolic of, of the stubborn, you know, 5, 10, 15% of UFO reports that after careful scientific examination, defy a terrestrial explanation. So it's symbolic, that number 701. Well, phenomenon 7.7, the producers were Empire Studios, Michael Musto, and a guy named uh, um, uh, Dr. Frank Stranges. And I was like, oh, okay. And he was like, well, we're calling it phenomenon 7.7 because in 1965, out of this many cases, you know, 7... Yeah, it was like seven whatever percent was unexplained. But anyway, it was very kind of similar to, you know, what we were initially called. That's interesting. So they came. I find out that that Lonnie with, uh, participates in this film in 1965 uh, from Empire Studios with two uh, with the director and producer, Michael Musto and, and Dr. Frank Stranges. Well, I couldn't find Michael Musto, but I found Dr. Frank Stranges. And um, I looked him up, and he had just passed, unfortunately. But I wanted to find where this movie was, okay? And I I read more articles about it, and that basically the movie was going to be premiered. And it look, it was it was shot on sixteen millimeter color, and it was documented the entire like all the witnesses, Lonnie Zamora on camera. No one's ever seen it, and so I was like dying to get my hands on this thing. And I looked up Empire Studios. I got a hold of Doctor Frank Strange's wife, uh, Julie, and. Julie had some medical issues at the time and she was still, you know, very devastated by the passing of her husband, Frank. And I uh, befriended her. It it took me about a year, but then I went through, uh, you know, with her blessing, I went through his storage facilities, which were in Los Angeles that were, you know, uh, boxes stacked to the ceiling and all these at hundred degree temperature heat with no ventilation and no windows and going in there and going through, hundreds and hundreds of boxes from top to bottom looking for a copy of this film. And she kept telling, I know it's here somewhere. And I must've spent two weeks looking for this thing, pouring sweat, can't breathe, couldn't find it. Then I did research on empire studios. It had gone bankrupt. It was purchased by some other company. I contacted that company. I had people going to the archives there. Oh my God. Long story short, after five years, I gave up and I never found the film. And I'm going to ask your audience to be patient with me, but I think it's called Phenomenon 7.7. I'm almost 99% sure. So if anyone ever hears of it or can continue that effort to find it, you'll find 16 millimeter color 
you know, interviews, uh, professionally shot with a budget from Empire Studios in 1965 of one of the most compelling and well-documented UFO close encounters of the third kind in Socorro, New Mexico. But I was unable to get my hands on it. You did the dirty work, James. Now it's time for someone else to continue that. So any of my viewers or listeners, I know you are all as tenacious as James is. So get out there and look for that film. We need to find that. Um, well, okay. So kind of moving to the second act of the film, James, because I do want to get to some awesome listener questions with you. Um, this is what I have sort of coined um, BNYT and ANYT before New York Times, after New York Times, which seems to be kind of the... Um, you know, the cusp of UFO disclosure. I hate using that word. I know you do too. But um, let's talk about um, that part of the film, the people you interviewed about this story that broke in 2017, exploded all over the world. Um, and you were able to get access to a lot of people who a lot of journalists have not. And um, a very few, I should say. That was uh, Senator Harry Reid, Chris Mellon. Tell me all about this um, journey in the film because this is where it really, really picked up for a lot of I would say probably the um, the younger people out there who watched mm. the film because this mm. was more modern for them instead yeah. of the history lesson of Project Blue Book. Uh, yeah, tell us all about what you found and uh, what they had to say. Okay, so uh, one thing I'd like to say establish right out the gate here is that I understand that you know, the first part of the film is a sort of history lesson. I went to great lengths to find never before seen archival footage, newsreel footage, stuff that the world has never seen. And I did it because it'll be the last time I ever do it. I, the first half of the film is done. So the second half of the film is to be taken seriously, to be put into context. Because if I succeeded with my goal, and quite honestly, it's been a goal that I've had for 26 years, and that is to create a seminal feature-length documentary film on the topic of UFOs that can transcend the whole UFO community and penetrate a much broader global audience that has very little information on, on this very important topic, in my opinion, uh, than Roswell and Area 51. So that is why I spent as much time as I did on the first half of the film. I had to put what occurs in the second half in context. I had to walk the audience through like the history of the phenomenon, the modern day history of the phenomenon in terms of, you know, the, the evolution of, of policy within the air force, and how they were trying to deal with this problem. And, uh, and that was, why I did that. And I've read some, I try not to read reviews, but I, you know, people are oh, the same old history. It's like, well, I can't change the fact. The history is the history. Okay. We, sh we focus on some of the more poignant moments of that historical record. And we do so in a way with new, fresh archival material. I know that because I've had even Richard Dolan go, where did you find that? Oh yeah. <laughs> well, what, yeah. Right. So, James. And let, let me be clear. Um, I, I'm a no, you know, I, when I say like history lesson, I mean that in the best of ways because oh, no. I have been investigating and researching this topic uh, since I was 13 years old. And that first half of the film, I learned so much that I never knew. So yeah, please, anyone who's, you know, you know, writing reviews saying, I knew all this. I knew all this. No, you didn't. You did not know 
about a lot of these things that you were able to find. So yeah, let's be clear. Yeah, that's, it was needed. I, and I look, and I I had to do it. I just had to, because like I said, they're not going to look, I know my reaction when I heard about the Rua case in the nineties, when I was doing a film on UFOs in the nineties, three years after that case happened, 1997, I'm trying to get an interview with Steven Spielberg, just naive enough at the time to think I could pull it off. And Steven said, you know, through our mutual friend, Janet Yang, hey, uh, yeah, going to go ahead and not meet with you. But I do want you to know there's this case that you should look into since you're doing a UFO film. And it's a landing and a reported close encounter of the third kind. It took place in broad daylight at a school in Africa. I'm thinking to myself, yeah, right. How could that happen and the whole world not know about it? So I knew what I was up against. If I wasn't going to believe it to the point where I wouldn't even look into it, there's no way the general public could have believed that ever happened. So I had to set the film up. And, and jokingly, we had this mantra in the edit studio. Where are we going? Road to Rua. Road to Rua. We're in a courtroom. We're presenting our case. And we need to build our case and to get to uh, the point in which the audience may just walk away from watching this film thinking that that, that incident really did, really did happen. Now, probably about four and a half years into production, the New York Times story breaks. I kind of knew from previous experiences, you know, you get the valleys and the peaks and, uh, and and the level of interest within the media on the on the topic it never goes away totally. But sometimes you have these lull periods, and I, I've I've seen that it happened when I with all films I've ever done on the topic, and I've done four. And I jokingly was saying in the studio, "Hey, you know," it was like, "Well, how are you going to end this movie?" And I said, "Well, I don't, you know, I." Usually there's a sighting that gets promoted. I'm sure something will happen. You know, it's going to be several years. And But I had no idea that the secret Pentagon program, ATIP, was going to wind up on the front page of the New York Times and that a household name, Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, was going to be the guy who launched it. I mean, my God, that was like the most explosive thing that could have possibly happened. I mean, granted, add a couple of years of, of production onto the film, but my God, what a wonderful wonderful thing to, to have occurred and and everything has changed since then you asked me how how do i know that it's because i've got people around the world that have been heckling me for decades on, on my research into this and my films into this less so you know more recently but when that story broke i had people all over all over going maybe you were right. Jesus, James, I, I can't believe this. This is amazing. It really changed the climate significantly. And then of course we had our primary targets of, you know, Fravor and Mellon and, and, and Reed and Lou Elizondo and the New York times. And, you know, we had to, you know, I'm, I'm not kidding when I said it, it was at least another two years, at least another two years and possibly more because when we eventually got an interview with Senator Harry Reed, which was a truly wow moment for me in production uh he dropped a couple of bombshells which led to us realizing we had the other elements of the phenomenon that we had to cover in the movie which added an additional year of production and that is ufos and nukes burrow's furniture is built for the way you live from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating they always have their customers in mind their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. 
ChumbaCasino.com/acast. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And, I mean, there were some things that Harry Reid said in your film that instantly went viral, you know, once the film came out and was all over the headlines. And uh, that was pretty, pretty interesting. Some of the stuff he had to say. Um, yeah. So I guess kind of wrapping up that part, James, the UFOs and nukes, this is a very alarming topic within ufology that um, doesn't get the credit that it deserves. And I think people like Robert Hastings and, and Salas and individuals like this coming forward and giving their testimony, hundreds of cases. I mean, yeah. you can, Piled so many of these. And uh, one of my favorite parts was the part that you had with Map the World and how many nukes have been detonated. I won't say anything else, but it gave me chills, man. It gave me chill. You know, I, I got I to gotta plug a couple of people there. Robert Hastings made his entire archive available to us. He worked with me night and day. He was absolutely amazing. He deserves all the credit for that. I mean, it was painstaking putting that together with, 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 with my writer uh, partner, Mark Barish, who's amazing. And, and also we have George Knapp was working tirelessly behind the scenes to make it Harry Reid on board. That was like a window about, Oh, maybe like this. I didn't talk to even my partner about it. No one, no one during negotiations. I want to jinx it. And it was almost got pulled out from under us the, the morning of, but um, yeah, that uh, you know, you, you think of UFOs uh, you know, but then you hear about interacting with our nukes and penetrating extremely sensitive nuclear weapons facilities and shutting them off. Yeah. In some cases, turning them on. Uh, that's an intelligence. That's like, whoa, damn. What are they? What are they saying to us? And that was one of my favorite moments. Basically, I met with Robert Salas years ago, and he goes, "Well, the message is pretty clear to me. It's like taking matches out of the hands of a baby." You know, and that was one of the one of the aspects that, that Senator Reed had shared with me on camera when we were doing a little walk and talk, getting some B roll in the in the hallway, which was massive. I, I mean, I couldn't believe that he didn't reveal it, and I didn't ask during the sit down, but he did reveal it during the walk and talk for the B roll, and he said that was one of the more alarming aspects of the phenomenon, and that's you know that's why we ended up doing the section that we did uh, in with UFOs and nukes, which I find it's. It's unbelievable. It is. And I think it's only just begun of what we're going to learn about that part of all of this. But um, kind of wrapping up my personal questions here, James. Um, yes. Zimbabwe, we have to just cover it briefly. We won't go through the event. Um, anyone 
who wants to know about the event, go watch the film. You cover it in great detail. But um, what you did is the the case involved child witnesses, which is amazing. These cases with children, it they make some of the best witnesses because they have no filtering mechanism. They uh, they don't have preconceived notions about what they saw. They just tell you what the hell happened. And I wish we had more of those types of people out there. So, um, but you caught up with them. You went to Zimbabwe and you interviewed these witnesses, God, decades later. And that was the other part of the film that made me cry was when you interviewed these people and all of them, all of them stick to the story, yeah. which is incredible, you know, I, and it I, shows I, I, how much it affected their lives. I get goosebumps just thinking about it. It's the most amazing case I've ever investigated. Absolutely. And, you know, looking at, at Randall Nickerson, by the way, he's got a film coming out. One of our co-producers, Dan Farah, is producing it with Randall. He's been working on it for, for a long time, and he, he, he needs to get credit where credit is due. He's done an extensive research on that case. He was very helpful in locating some of the witnesses today. Um, and making that and pulling that off. And, and look, I had a level of resistance from day one with that case because my investor at the time, this guy, Larry was just like, you know, you mean to tell me you, I said, I got, I get it. I said, look, I had the same reaction. Just Larry, hold on. Just please. I said, just look at, you got to just look at this archive footage of the children being interviewed by a Harvard psychiatrist. Just take a moment. You know, I don't believe because Look, it's really hard for anyone to wrap their mind around how a sighting of that significance. You've got a UFO, multiple UFOs, land in broad daylight during morning recess. There were 100 kids. People often say 66. It's closer to 100 because 66 went on camera. 100 kids in the playground that witness in broad daylight, and the occupants get out and interact telepathically with the kids. And look, you'd go and ask anyone randomly on the street, and on street corner, they're gonna they're gonna think you're smoking a, a, a you know a, a, a crack pipe. I mean, honestly, no one's gonna believe it. But I'm telling you, when you look at the the testimony of the children, then you track them down and you talk to them 20 years later, and then you go to the the, the location in Africa and you meet with more of the students now young adults, and then the school teacher. Listen very carefully at the end of the movie what Judy Bates that says, who's now the headmistress. You you really have to. Pay attention and listen to what she says, because she apologizes to the children for her behavior at the time, her unwillingness to sort of back the kids up, and then sort of confirms that she was dealing with stuff from her own personal experience uh, of that incident. It's quite remarkable, and um, and a lot of people miss it. But if you listen very carefully to what she says, she's she's um, yeah she's confirming what the kids saw, and she's confirming it in a way that would would definitely suggest that she was a witness as well. Absolutely. And I think it's important to also stress uh, this idea that when a child comes to a adult with something like this, of course, they try to brush it off. Um, and so did the news. And this goes for the Westall case, which you cover as well. And a teacher who came forward with that one as well. Um, but I wouldn't, exactly, I wouldn't exactly say he came forward. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, we'll, we'll let the viewers <laughs> debate that. But um yeah, I think this idea uh, of 
children being really good witnesses really shone through and the messages they were given. Again, there's so much to this case and you cover it so well. So we'll let the viewers um, look at that. But um, yeah. Let me say one thing, if I may briefly on that. Uh, That was uh, that and and Socorro were two of the most challenging uh, edits. Clearly there's so much content, you know, um, you know, like I said, Socorro, I interviewed the whole family and coworkers and local sheriff and, all the documentation. I mean, there's only so much you could put in, you know, in t- 10 minutes, 15 minutes. That case, um, Zimbabwe, Rua, we probably spent over a thousand editing hours on that piece. And it was pretty good. And I eventually got a new writing partner, this guy, Mark Barish. And he is an incredibly smart and talented guy who just happened to have worked with John Mack during that time in the 90s and even traveled to Africa with him. That case was very close to his heart. He'd been thinking about it for 20 years. In fact, he founded a company planting trees after he heard about uh, the testimony from the children and the environmental impact and all that stuff. And he's since responsible for planting 10 million trees. That case was so close to him. He came into the studio with me, you know, pretty late on when we had a pretty good rough cut of that section. And it took like myself and three other editors take after take after take. I mean, it was, it was a monster to, to get a handle on. And, uh, and Mark came in, he goes, well, let me have a look. And I said, Mark, I think we've got a pretty good cut. He goes, well, let me come in and have a look. So he came in and had a look and he was one of those guys that was so fastidious about everything that it was like annoying because I sit in the edit room just going you know look over and I'm like uh Mark he goes oh no there's a statement here with one of these kids and we're looking through like 15 hours of material it's here you know no this is important James and I'm just totally annoyed just going oh come on like I've been working on this for years and uh he was right Mark was right because Mark made these little changes these little bits of testimonials that may seem insignificant at the time, but that just add that next layer of not only credibility, but storytelling that it really got that section to, to, to really pop. And, um, you know, the ending was kind of an accident. I think I've talked about this before, but um, I was amazed at hearing the accounts of the children now as adults, hearing them, have, after having 20 years to think about and process, you know, this whole event, a lot of them had never even spoke to their partners about it after all 20 years because they were tired of defending it. But, but listening to the adults, you know, talking about an event that occurred 20 years ago as if it happened yesterday, you know, yeah. the level of description of the encounter and uh, watching them draw what they saw. And uh, I created this whole montage of the adults voices but them as children and i worked really hard on it i spent weeks and weeks on it and i didn't know where to put it and so i sort of bumped it to the end of the timeline and i don't know if you've heard this or not but i was like oh i like this this is i like where this is going because sometimes when you're in the edit studio you just try things out like does mm-hmm. do i like this does this work uh, this might work and like a lot of times you scrap something but you don't know you have to explore and go down that rabbit hole and i did and i, I was liking the direction it was going you Looking at the children's faces, but you're hearing them as adults talking about the impact and 
the effect it was having on their emotions and all this stuff and the, the adults not believing them and not offering them support and extracting all this information out of them without actually giving them therapy and like helping them understand like what had just happened. And yeah. um, it was really great, great little moment. I took that chunk and I put it at the end of the timeline and I said, I'll, 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 I'll revisit that in a few months. Well, during that period, I inadvertently, totally accidentally deleted the audio of all that hard work I'd done. I mean, we're talking like weeks gone. And and I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I did that. I was like, oh, I don't know if I have the courage to try to do that again. I was like, ah. Oh. And the player head one day just kept going because I forgot to hit the space bar, which stops the player head in the timeline. And it plays over the children's faces that I'd edited with no sound. And there was like some soundtrack, there was music playing, but no, no interviews, no them talking, just, just the faces, music. And I went, oh my gosh, wow, that's powerful. Just, you know, they say an expression is worth a thousand words. Boy, all the expressions of those children's faces right after the incident was the most powerful thing I'd ever seen. Yeah. And I knew right, I knew right then and there, I was like, this film's ending with the children, that's it. Yeah, and, exactly, uh, man. Well, and I think that's what this film is about. I mean, it ends with the next generation, always. Yeah. You know, this this message of this is what happened then, this is what happens now. Whatever these intelligence are that presumably visited these children uh, or, or what message they wanted to convey, they did it to the children for a reason. And I think that's really stressed in what the kids now adults have done with their lives. I mean, you showed what these people did with their lives after saying that this event affected them moving forward. Social right. workers, um, you know, environmentalists, uh, um, civil rights lawyers. It's incredible to see that these children went on to do amazing things and attribute it to this event. That That's what really uh, kind of tugged at my heartstrings. Cause you know me, man, I'm all about the aftermath of an event and how it affects people. So I'm yeah, so happy yeah. you ended the film that way. Isn't it just like, I mean, it, it, you know, it's funny. I have not watched the film since I completed it. I have not watched oh. it. I, I needed to step away from it, but, but I say this to your audience, like when you eventually, if you read the film or if you buy it, uh, if you do get, if you do decide to purchase it, you can, you got to get it on iTunes or or Vimeo because you get three hours of bonus material for the same price. Other platforms, unfortunately, just didn't offer that. Um, when you watch it, do yourselves a favor and watch it with good speakers because we were going to be in movie theaters, and movie theaters recommended that I did a five point one Dolby surround mix. Well, that requires a sound engineer. Sorry, I got something in my eye. That requires a sound engineer and weeks and weeks of really hard and expensive work. Like, geez, you know. But I tell you, people told me, James, you don't understand how important this is. You really need to, to, to go the extra mile. And I literally went to the bank. I took out a loan to do this last bit. And, uh, and I think it took the guy the better part of six weeks, maybe eight weeks, something like that. And uh, he's like, okay, we're ready for you. And we'd send him the files for uh, all the Peter Coyote interview and all that stuff. And I went down into this beautiful theater, like big screen, surround Dolby speakers. I mean, it was really a, an impressive, like, setup. And uh, we watched the damn movie. 
and I felt like I was watching my movie for the first time all by myself, and I haven't seen it since. You know, we put some credits and things of that nature, but basically the whole film, start to finish, color correction, audio sweetening, surround mix, and if you have a Dolby 5.1, that section of the film in Socorro, New Mexico, the voices from the letters, they bounce around the room. Yeah. Like, the sounds, oh my gosh, Jesus, please watch this movie with good speakers, because my Lord, I could not believe the difference uh, it made uh, watching it with the way it was designed to be heard. Because, like I said, this was going to be in movie theaters. We got mm-hmm. robbed of that, unfortunately, for now. And so uh, it, it's, it's, it's truly a, a spectacular experience, in my humble opinion, when you see what this audio, this like six-time Emmy Award-winning audio engineer did. Because, wow, it was, it was yeah. really impressive. Yeah, and I mean, kudos to everyone who worked on the film in terms of your, you know, who did the score and the cinematography and this and that. Um, Everyone involved, we won't name them name by name. That's what credits are for, but just beautiful job by everyone, I have to say, James. I've seen every horrible UFO documentary out there and every good one out there as well. Suffered through some bad ones, but dude, this just hit every mark that a UFO researcher could hope for in a UFO film. So um, I I would love, if you're willing to stick around, yeah. I will fire through some listener questions totally. here. Is yeah, that cool? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Totally. yeah. Awesome, yeah. I never have received this many listener questions for an episode. So this is uh, this is fun for me. Um, it, it really depends on how, how much you're willing to share, but let's just go through these, man. Um, some of them you already answered. So yeah. apologies yeah. to those out there if I didn't, don't get to your question. Um, let's see here. Uh, Rick on Facebook asks, Luis Elizondo endorsed the hell out of your film, saying it said things he could not and that it was entirely accurate. That is a hell of an endorsement coming from the former head of the secret Pentagon UFO program. So Rick wants to know, um, uh, given the mo- that most of the film was about a non-human intelligence, James, um, what are your current thoughts about the alien theory? Uh, this guy, Rick, he, he buys into it, but um, what do you think? What was your intent with the film? Was it to say some of this could be alien or was it to say we don't know? I have drawn the conclusion and I've asked this question to the highest level of people I've ever been in the room with. Um, I want to know what is going on. And I, I really want to know, believe me, it's been a life. My almost my entire adult life has been, I, I'm a Taurus. I, I get to the bottom of things. I don't know if we'll ever know in our lifetimes. I, I'd like us to, I, I don't know. But what, what I do feel comfortable saying and this is speculation, but it's informed speculation, is that there is clearly an omnipresent intelligence that has the ability to manifest itself. It's nuts and bolts. It's also psychic in in a multitude of ways around the globe. Okay. And, um, and, and it plays tricks on us sometimes. It, uh, um, they have a sense of humor. Uh, they also, uh, you know, can read our thoughts, which 
which is, sounds a little crazy, but I can't tell you how many times I've talked to witnesses about it. I mean, look, I'll give you one example of that alone. And that's with Parviz Jafari. Um, he was chasing a jet over Tehran in 1976, the Iranian general. Um, and he decided, just thinking about trying to shoot this thing that he was chasing, he literally went to do it, and his whole control panel locked up. He was like, he said to himself, boy, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. But it, 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 I could go into detail after detail after detail about this, but they, they have the ability to read our minds. They're technological. Their, their technology is light years advanced from our own. Um, you know, clearly I, I'm of the camp. If they wanted to do us harm, we would have done it a long time ago. I don't believe that. Um, um, one of the things I learned in the in, yeah, sort of organically in the edit room is I was working with this guy, Lance Mungia, he's a great guy. He was an editor. He came over some fresh ideas and thoughts and came up with some brilliant, brilliant strategies. But he goes, James, you know, we, we should really, and David Marler had all this wonderful archive audio and stuff, you know, newspaper clippings and everything. And he goes, we should take out a map and see where these sightings are all happening in the 40s and 50s. And, you know, so we took this map out, Texas and New Mexico, and we're all going, oh, look at this. Proximity to Trinity site. That's right here. And these bunkers are right there. Roswell's over here. Huh. We're going, hmm, that's interesting. This level of activity all around this, you know, within proximity to all this nuclear activity. Well, what does that say to to me personally, then we looked at the UFOs and nukes aspect of it. They're clearly interested in our nuclear capabilities or the, 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 the birth of the atomic age. I mean, that's all that stuff was happening right around that hot spot. And uh, we made that cor correlation. Of course we read about it, and, you know, but to actually like be in the interim going, look at on the map and putting pins in going, there's gotta be a correlation here, you know? And so yeah. maybe it's a parallel you know, a parallel universe, or maybe it's, you know, uh, another intelligence that's paralleling ours that, you know. Yeah, possibilities <laughs> are endless, man. Us from the future, you know? Be all of the above, I don't know. But they definitely, I feel very comfortable to say they clearly have an interest in our atomic and nuclear capabilities. No question about it. Yeah, tell me about it. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. So Craig on Twitter asks, James, have you gotten any feedback from those in government who've seen the film? And if so, is there anything you could share with us? Anyone, you know, top brass or anything reach out to you after the film came out? Yes. Yeah, so I, I know my understanding is that um, uh, both Biden and, and the Trump campaign got uh, either a briefing or a copy of the film. Uh, I know that it's been making the rounds at the Pentagon because we got a call from a former CIA, CIA guy who confirmed that was happening. Um, some of which were happy about the fact that the film was coming out and some of them were not because obviously, you know, we deal with Roswell, the potential crash of an alien spaceship. And I think they'd rather that just like disappear and, you know, because it's like one thing to talk about unidentified flying objects around, you know, but buzzing around the skies. There's another one to say we've actually recovered one of these things. Yeah. So, yeah, so yeah, wow. pretty clear indication that there's been a level of interest in, in, in the White House and, and among different camps in the Pentagon, for sure. And look, this is this is not a quick flash in the pan journey we're on here getting the film out. This is going to be probably the better part of a year process with, you know, different screenings. We're in talks with, you know, different streamers for global platforms. You know, we're not in a hurry. We're, we're, we're putting the film out. 
and we're going to get it out to the whole world. And that process is going to take the better part of two years. Uh, I'm sorry, a yeah. year. Excuse me. Yeah. Hey, slow and steady race, man. Every yeah. time, every time. Um, all right. Well, our resident quantum physicist, Deep, he asks, beyond isotopic ratios in relation to the uh, samples that Gary Nolan and Jacques Vallée were in possession of, James, and uh, had tested, um, was there anything else anomalous about the samples, to your knowledge, that Jacques Vallée is in possession of? So what, what ended up in the, in the film is what got kind of got the teeth pulled out of it at the end because of a couple things. One, Jacques is very cautious of not making any concrete assertions without peer review, as well as being published in a scientific uh, journal. Um, so I know that Jacques was very, very concerned about maintaining a fairly conservative position. Um, I know that, 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 that Gary had his concerns with his association with, with Stanford University uh, and that aspect of it. So we kind of had to tone it down because when we got in the actual lab, they were revealing a lot more, which would unfortunately end. They needed to get approval. It had to kind of get signed off on. And so we kind of toned that level of it down. But I do know that, and look, I'm not, I'm no scientist. Okay. I'm not going to even pretend like I am, but I do know that, that, that the level of excitement was pretty high when they're looking at something that was manufactured, that was engineered at an atomic level. And uh, they didn't know exactly why or how, but that was, uh, Gary felt quite confident that was going to, they will find out and that's going to potentially lead to other breakthrough technology and this sort of thing. So that's about as far as I can go on that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's about as far as a lot of us can go with that yeah. in terms of our scientific knowledge of isotopic ratios. Yeah, but no, hey, look, even people like uh, Tom DeLong and to the stars Academy and whatnot they're they've got same, you know, the same sort of, not the exact same, but materials they're in possession of that are manufactured at the atomic level as well. So there has to be something to it. Um, only time will tell. But um, Luis, Luis on Twitter asks, James, you dived into CE3 cases in the Phenomenon film. And I was wondering if you will continue reporting and investigating credible close encounter of the third kind or more cases in the future. And she also asks, and this is probably the most popular question, uh, one of two most popular questions, uh, has Joe Rogan contacted you yet? Uh, okay. So let's get the first part of it is the answer yeah. to that is yes, I will. I'm never going to do another history section. We've done it moving on. Okay. So now like for instance, the Virginia case, I'm clearly going to do something with that. Um, we're in talks with major streamers about a miniseries. No question of that. Um, in terms of the people like Joe Rogan, um, uh, sit tight. Yep. We'll leave it at that. Yeah, yeah. Always leaving us with something, James. I love it. Um, Tom on Twitter asks, uh, you've talked in recent interviews about how you have consistently run into reports of UFO witnesses encountering men in black, something yeah. that we didn't really talk about in the film or in this discussion. So um, do you have any theories about the purpose or origin of the men in black? Yeah. What are your thoughts on the MIBs? I didn't believe it. Well, I wouldn't say I didn't believe it because I talked to people dating back to the nineties that I'd heard these reports. And I was just like, I don't know. It's almost like they went over my head. I would hear them. And then I just wouldn't register because I'm thinking to myself, come on, really? Like these guys showed up in suits, like really come on. But then I heard another one and another one and another one. And five years later, another one and another one, and another one. 
and another one and really credible reports of another ones. And finally, I was in South America meeting with the mother of two of the daughters that came face to face as one of these live fiends from that alleged crash in Virginia, Brazil in 1996. And then I'm talking to the mother in her home. Like, I mean, this, this woman is not trying to sell crazy. And she's just like, yeah. And then these guys in suits came over and I went, okay, I've heard enough. These guys exist. And um, sometimes they're menacing, sometimes less so. Sometimes they're there to take whatever evidence. They're from an unknown government agency. I know that I talked about this a little bit with Christopher Mellon because we've been doing a lot of interviews together. And I'm not sure if I went beyond his comfort zone when I started talking about it from my personal experience, from people that I've talked to, witnesses, and I can give accounts until I'm blue in the face. Um, I actually checked in with Christopher Mellon after that. In the last interview that we did together, I was like, oh, I hope it didn't go like beyond your comfort level. I don't want to associate you with me. You know, and he goes, no, no, you didn't say anything that I was uncomfortable with. And I was like, okay, I just talked about men in black. And you seem to be okay with that. <laughs> but look, I, I didn't believe it. I, and I don't know what agency they're from, but they're very interested in, look, the better the case and the likelihood of any decent evidence, they're damn straight. They're going to show up. Yeah. Yeah. In some form or fashion. Yep. I I agree with you. Um, All right. Nick on Twitter asks, you brought up the most pristine UAP video uh, that you'd personally ever seen in an interview with Rich Dolan recently. And Nick wants to know, have you had any further contact with the guy who was in possession of this video? And will we ever see it? Great question. I got messaged by two people. Um, after that Richard Dolan interview, I was like, wow, wow. I should have brought up some, a, a few other things as well, because he's got quite an audience and an audience that's, that's pretty, you know, plugged in. And, uh, one of the people confirmed, he goes, I saw that video too in 2001. I was like, oh my God, you signed. He goes, I said, how do you remember it? He goes, exactly like you remembered it. I said, great. I'm, I can't believe it's the first person I've heard in 25 years that said that. Then I got contacted by another person. And that other person is a private investigator, homicide cases, and he is looking into it. That's fair. That's all we can ask for. Um, All right. Well, here we go. One of your editors actually chimed in as well here, James, and that's Lance you mentioned earlier. Um, He wants to know what through lines of uh, a cover-up that you found via investigative journalism, stories about people, you know, being forced to shut up or about what they saw being paid off, threatened, humiliated, um, physical evidence that was disappearing. He put it. um, Yeah. What do you think? Is there a clear cover-up in all of the research that you've done? Hi Lance, by the way. Um, (laughs) I think I think that Lance knows where the bodies are. I, I really do. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. We um, put it past him. Yeah, no, it's interesting having, I think one of the most telling moments for me was when I was in Australia and I met with a couple of witnesses that uh, had been silent for 50 years. One of them was a school teacher. It was a science teacher. Um, and I know that he was a witness because I talked to all uh, a, the papers, but I also talked to uh, uh, the, ch- the then children, now adults, that were standing next to him. And uh, I, I, again, I won't bore your, your audience with, with details on how that interview came about, but uh, it was one of the more difficult things I, you know, challenged to do to get him to come forward. 
but he said that he had met visits from guy. Uh, it was at least one man in a suit, another one in a military uniform, and they threatened him in no uncertain terms and on on multiple multiple things reasons why he he cannot talk about it didn't talk about it for 50 years yeah yeah i mean look i think that's changing now i really do i haven't i mean the last story i heard about these guys menacing witnesses was in the 90s and i'm just i'm sorry i'm just trying to think if i've heard any more recent cases well the 2006 o'hare but i think that was more of a question of the United Airlines not wanted to be associated with pilots who see UFOs or staff that see UFOs. I think that was less of a government shutdown or cover-up, less so. Um, But I think things are changing. I mean, look, look look at what's happening right now. Look at the fact that people like um, former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid coming forward and, and publicly, you know, not only making those incredible statements, but endorsing a film that deals with you know, close encounters of the third kind and all these other unambiguous UFO encounters. Um, it's a very encouraging sight. Christopher Mellon, all the work he's doing, Lou Elizondo, like, yeah. you know, whether you like Two of the Stars Academy or not, it's a, quite an influential group of people getting together and, and making stuff happen. And so um, I think I'm, I'm incredibly excited for the future of this. I, I really think that we might just be reaching a tipping point. I honestly believe that. Mm-hmm. I, I do too. And we'll get to that in a minute, what the government is currently doing in terms of the UFO issue. Uh, but let's get to this one here. Derek on Twitter asks, do you believe that full disclosure would fundamentally change humankind? This, you know, big grand capital D disclosure. I mean, I know you're not a big fan of it. I'm not either of it ever happening. But yeah, if it did, James, uh, what would change? Everything or nothing? I am firmly convinced that if the floodgates opened and it was revealed what uh, what is known, I think two things. I think one, it's going to open up the floodgates of of inquiries of which a lot of things they they don't have the answers to. I really don't believe they know who they are, where they come from, what they want. I really believe in my heart of hearts. Yeah, of course they know they're real, and I'm sure they've recovered the stuff, and I'm sure that Roswell happened the way they said it happened. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that, you know, just because you have a piece of the debris that you have the answers, you know, who they are, where they come from, what they want. I think anybody who says they do is, is full of doggy doo. I, I really do believe that. Uh, and, and look, my position could be challenged and that's fine. I'm just speaking from my personal, uh, perspective and, and from people that I've talked to and I've talked to pretty high level people around the world. And I'd love to say that they do know what's going on, but the, the other prong to that whole potential revelation is I think it could be just exactly what the world needs right now. I think that it would force us to see ourselves for who we really are. And that's one race and one planet. And I firmly believe that it sounds like a kumbaya moment here, but, but I, how could you not, how could it not have a unifying effect on all of humanity? So I'm very optimistic about it. And I think even if it's a little scary, we don't have a lot of the, all, all the answers. That's okay. Yeah. I don't think we're ever going to get those answers. Honestly, that's my, my personal opinion. And I think you're right. I think the world is not doing too good right now. A lot no. going on. Um, and I'm not just talking here in, you know, these very Western eyes that us Americans usually look through. Yeah. We've got political turmoil. We've had it in the past. We'll have it again. Um, but a worldwide pandemic. I mean, this is, killing the world. Um, The world itself 
is dying every day from the things we've done to our own planet. So, hey, if there's going to be some sort of intervention from another intelligence, I think we're inching closer to them finally being like, let's cut the shit, let's help them out, and then let's see what happens. You know what's really funny? I've thought about this in the past, and again, this is just total speculation. I need to emphasize that to the 10th degree. But I've had a thought for some time now that maybe, just maybe, the level of awareness reaches a certain point globally of their existence, their influence. That consciousness gets to a certain level. That might be a tipping point as well for them revealing themselves more openly. Again, total speculation, but I've had that thought on a number of occasions that, you know, maybe we're, maybe they felt we weren't ready. I don't know. Just say that's a good point. I, I, I truly think we are on the phenomenon's timetable. I really do. I think whatever it is, whatever variables are involved with it, um, that disclosure is not going to come from the government. It's going to come from each individual seeing a UFO, having a close encounter, having a brush with the paranormal, whatever, whatever it is, we're on their timetable. And I think you're right. Once enough people finally acknowledge this, and I think we're getting closer to the work you're doing, the work Tom DeLong's doing, and all these other people getting involved with this topic, uh, hopefully we'll get to that point where they'll finally make themselves known. But um, kind of wrapping up the listener questions here, James, this is probably the most important listener question we have. And I don't know if you're going to be willing to answer it, but I'm going to try. Dean Eliotto asks, what was your craft service budget for the film? (laughs) (laughs) I had to, man. I had to. Oh, my God. I think it was like a buck 50 or something. Some McDonald's, right? Yeah. yeah. Value menu. Value menu. <laughs> well, you know what's really funny is uh, I've, I've said this before, but we literally edited this movie at the end of a dirt road in a in a little shack that had an extension cord running from the main house a couple hundred yards away or a couple hundred feet away. Uh, you know, no internet, no uh, very little cell phone reception because Jacques used to come out for these marathon edit sessions and he, he was completely cut off from the world. And, we, and in this little shack with no running water, no toilet. And it was, you know, kind of a little, a little rough. And I would tell people like, Hey, but it was supposed to be a temporary situation until I could find something else. I mean, I live in a small community. I know everybody. I was thinking I could find an affordable place to edit my movie and I couldn't. And I have a room in my house to do it. The very room I'm sitting in now, but I have a son that would come in. I've got people coming in all hours and, you know, really disturbing. And, uh, and, and we got so much work done in this beautiful little space in this garden, in this little cabin that we just made allowances for, you know, the fact that, you know, we, we didn't have a bathroom. We didn't have running water. We didn't have, but we, but, but magic happened in that isolated spot. And, um, I sound like broken record here, but Jacques would joke around. He goes, okay, I'm, I'm coming out from San Francisco. I got my compass. I got my face paint. I got my, <laughs> I got my, I got my, I got my knife. You know, I was like, I got my pepper, my bear spray. And he was like, you know, <laughs> out this, like, down this He's door. got a sense of humor. Everyone oh, sees this guy is so serious all the time. Uh, but. Yeah, he's got the best sense of humor of anyone I, 
I, I'm so intimidated by just being in his presence. I have to be honest with you. I really feel like, you know, an idiot. I hate to say it, but I just feel so inadequate next to this guy, Jacques. It's just like, oh, my gosh, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I'm not, you know, and yet he didn't make me feel stupid. He didn't make me feel – he made me feel like an equal, which I'm not, but I, he made me feel that way, you know, and he was really humble and such an amazing man. I just – I have so much admiration for him, so much respect for him, and and, and I owe Lee Spiegel – that was Lee Spiegel. That was all Lee Spiegel that made that introduction. And I owe the film is wouldn't be what it is today without without everybody involved, but without Lee Spiegel having brought uh, Jacques to the table. That was that was a game changer. That's awesome. Lee is a hell of a guy. He lives in New York here uh, near me, and we've met up a few times. And, you know, him telling me everything that was going on with your film. And you, oh. I remember you were sending me like little videos every now and again of you in, you know, the garden area. And there's like Jacques in the background. I'm just like, holy shit, this must be like the most surreal thing ever. So I want to ask, you know, kind of closing things up, James, yeah. what was the most like memorable experience throughout this huge journey for this film. Um, was there one moment you can really pinpoint where you're like, Oh my God, like I did it. I knocked this out of the park or I'm going to make a difference in this entire discourse about UFOs. Anything you can, you can sort of muster up there. Well, there were a couple of wow moments. Um, and I, I've, I've described this before because I, I was I, I always at a loss of, Trying to, uh, trying to uh, convey what it was like, the pressure of, of producing this film. And the best way I, I find is that um, I felt like I was in the ring with a monster and that I was literally just trying to survive the next round. And uh, that's the best way. It's exhausting because you can't like – like, I think I honestly, I look at myself in the mirror now and I just, I look like a beat up wreck. I mean, I, this film piece of me died making this movie and I'm not trying to sound melodramatic, but I really mean it. Um, a couple of wow moments for me was when I was in the lab in Stanford, it, it, it Silicon Valley with Jacques and, and Gary Nolan. I knew like, holy shit, this is big. Wow. I can't believe this is happening. The moment when I was in the room, thanks to George Knapp with Senator Harry Reid. I mean, geez, I've seen that guy in my living room for a long time. I've heard about Senator Reid. My God, I can't believe I'm sitting down with this guy. Uh, you know, there's a couple of those moments where, and then that increases the pressure because you know you've got more eyeballs watching, more expectations to deliver a good product. And um, And I'd say it was the final year push where you can't just settle for, oh, this is pretty good. No. You take a section of the movie, and if it doesn't move you profoundly, you rip it all apart and put it back together again. And I can't tell you, we did that with every scene. And then on top of that, when we were really happy, and I remember some people at 1091 were like, oh, my God, this film's amazing. And we're like, no, it's not. No, it's not. We need This film needs another six months. <laughs> and we'd rip it all sections apart, cut 30 minutes out, you know, restructuring thing up to the last minute. Look, we were editing – just a couple months ago, we were putting in new changes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I remember watching a screener like six months ago and then yeah. watching it again a couple of days ago. And I'm like, oh, there were some significant changes. Yeah. In yeah, I know. 
you really went to that last moment before distribution to uh, make everything you could. Yeah, we really did. We really did. And honestly, it's the first. Is it perfect? No, it's not perfect. Um, am I satisfied? Very. I, you know, I always have a quiet moment with myself. Usually, at some point when I'm ready, and I'm not ready yet, but I will. And, and that is, I will take out some wine or a whiskey by myself and put the headphones on or whatever, crank up the speakers and the stereo and, and I'll watch it all by myself. I did it with out of the blue. I did it with, I know what I saw. I did it with 50 years of denial. I always do it when the time is right. I'll do it. And I sit down by myself and usually a little tear will come down my cheek. Be like, okay, buddy, I can pat myself on the back, you know, did it. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and look, yeah. And, and I gotta, I gotta say that, and this is really important that I get this across is that this is, this is honestly the result of so many dedicated people in the, in the field. Well, we dedicated the the film to, to, to Stanton Friedman, but like the work of Jacques Vallée and Don Schmidt and Kevin Randall. And like, I could just go on to David Marler. I mean, it just does, the list doesn't end. And uh, the, the researchers in Australia and, you know, Randall Nickerson in the case in Africa, people, uh, Marco Real in, in South America. I mean, it just goes on and on. People in China, um, p- people in Russia that I, I met with. I mean, it just, this is the culmination of all of these, the, the work and dedication of so many researchers in this field. And I, and I would like to tip my hat to each and every one of them, people like yourself. Um, you know, open minds. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And, uh, and, and this is the culmination of, of a lot of people's hard work and dedication. And, and I, and I, the success of this film is really the success of, of, for all of us. I couldn't put it better myself. We all win when it comes to this film being out. We really do. And I mean, besides being a fan of your work, James, in general, I, I have to say like so many eyes are now on this film and, so many people within the government are watching this film and it gives us hope. It gives us hope that we have the Senate intelligence committee drafting bills about UFOs. We have, uh, you know, a UFO task force being created in the Pentagon, all because of the diligent work being done by independent UFO researchers and organizations. And you're a big part of that. So uh, my last question for you, do you have any hope of the future of, UFO studies, uh, maybe from a governmental angle, but if not, yeah. Do you think we're ever going to find out what's going on? I know unequivocally that there's something very big that's imminent. And I know that for a fact. Um, I think it's going to come in the form of, 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 a, of either a statement or something of that nature and sit tight for that. And I, um, I'm very confident that's about as all as I'm going to reveal. But that's it's imminent. And I just I can't say if it's one week, two weeks, three weeks, but it, it is. I've been told it's imminent. We will leave it at that, man. I can't ask for a better uh, way to wrap this up with hope, with hope that we're going to get something. So last question, of course, where can we find the phenomenon in everything you're up to, James? Oh, thank you. So you can go to the website, which is. Uh, oh, by the way, your audience, something that's really, really, really helpful if you guys can rate us on uh, Rotten Tomatoes and iTunes, it's incredibly helpful. It really does take that extra time and just give us a quick little rating. 
maybe a little blurb. You don't even have to do that. You can just do a hit the stars, whatever you feel the, the film is worthy of. And uh, that's incredibly helpful. And our website, which has all the links. And again, I'll remind your audience that if you want to buy the film, I think it's like $12.99 or something like that. Get it from iTunes or Vimeo because you get three hours, three hours of bonus material, which is really cool. Stuff that didn't make it in the movie. An interview with Story Musgrave, who piloted the space shuttle. Incredible epiphanies that he had. Really, really cool stuff. And again, www.thephenomenonfilm.com. www.thephenomenonfilm.com. And that has all the different links where the film's available. Perfect. Oh, I know what I'm doing tonight. Three more hours of James Fox coming my way with some bourbon for sure. And like you said, Ed- Edgar Mitchell and Story Musgrave, like, we didn't even touch on the astronaut aspect. So go get that on Vimeo, watch the extra footage. And all I could say, man, is um, while the world seems like it might be kind of falling apart, it's stuff like this. We're living in the most exciting year of UFOs we've ever had. So if there's any light at the end of the tunnel, I think it's the lights coming from those things above. And I can't wait to see what you do next, what what happens with this topic. And I have to thank you for coming on Somewhere in the Skies. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate the you know all that you do as well. So thank you. And thank to your audience for, for listening to me jabber on for like two hours. <laughs> is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.